What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Adhered Apologetics, wherever you may be, however you may be joining us. Thank you for making this a part of your day. Really pumped to have David Palman, the man behind Faith Because of Reason, here. Uh, he does a little bit of stuff on that topic you may know called the um, Calvinism slash Arminianism. So you, you may know about that if you know anything about theology. Uh, but what's up, David? How are you doing? I'm doing great, Zach. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, bro, for sure. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this really important topic. We're going to be addressing some of the like common misconceptions that, you know, when you get into those like Twitter or Facebook debates, they may be like, well, you know, Arminius believe this or, you know, and as an Arminius, I'm looking forward to talking to you about these things. But before we get into them, can you talk a little bit about like who you are, what you do? Yeah, sure. Uh, as you mentioned, I have the YouTube channel Faith Because of Reason. Uh, it's apologetics and theology. And so just nerdy stuff, whatever I'm studying at the moment, I kind of make it into a video essay and put it up over there. Uh, additionally, I'm a member of the Society of Evangelical Arminians and um, working on a book entitled Answering Calvinism. So yeah, that, that's all there is that's interesting about me. <laughs> hey, maybe there's a little bit more. I don't know. Um, so what got you... Obviously, I know I've followed you and what you do. You've done a lot of debates on this whole Calvinist Arminius issue. You're very involved um, in this dialogue. So, what got you interested in this whole dialogue? Oh, let's see. This was be back when I was, I think, when I was 17 or 18. Probably when I was 18, uh, I was really wrestling with uh, the whole issue of is Christianity true? Mm -hmm. And I was really reading like every apologetics book I could find. And I came across one by Ron Rhodes, who is a four point Calvinist. And uh, he had one section in there where he kind of made this case for Calvinism, not like a really big one, but he uh, gave a little case for it. And then he had a whole bunch of references that he gave. And so um, the denomination I was raised in, it was neither Calvinist nor Arminian. So we had elements of both, like we believed in eternal security, but you know, we also believed people had free will. So we, we, we weren't very precise. And I, I was familiar with some of the texts, but uh, there were a lot in there that I just, I'd never like seen them before or never thought of them in this context. And, and there were a lot. And I was like, oh, wow. Um, so I kind of made like a mental bookmark in my head to study that later. But uh, at the time, I was just more interested in uh, is Christianity even true more mm -hmm. so than where, you know, where, 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 what particular brand of it do I want to endorse? Uh, so I kind of put that issue on the shelf at, with the decision to return to it later. Uh, you know, so uh, about a year after that, I, I was a lot more solid in my Christian faith at that point, And I was kind of ready to return to the issue. Uh, and I was I was a big fan of Norman Geisler at the time. He'd like really helped me in my apologetics journey. And I knew he wrote this book on it called Chosen But Free. And so I was like, all right, you know, I'll read that and that'll that'll settle the issue for me. And if you've read that book, you know it's a mess. So um <laughs> it doesn't have it. But... Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. So um yeah, I mean you can read it for what it's worth, but um yeah, it, 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 I don't think it'll bring a lot of clarity to the issue for you. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, I didn't get a lot of answers there, and I was kind of disappointed with that. Uh, and this is my first year in Bible college, so um, yeah, I, I found this book called Why I'm Not a Calvinist by Jerry Walls and Joseph Dongel, and I read that, and that was kind of my introduction to Arminianism, because uh, Arminian was a bad word when, in my denomination. Like we Calvinists, they were bad, and Arminians, they were bad, and we just we just stuck to the Bible. That was that was what we said. Um, but like I said, we weren't precise on these issues. And just as I studied the issue more, it, it became clear that, uh, that you know, my theology was very much shifting towards Arminianism. And uh, it was my second year, I got this, uh, I had to write, well, do an exegesis. It was a hermeneutics class. And I had to do an exegesis of uh, the first six verses of Hebrews chapter six. Probably the most famous verse uh, brought up against eternal security. And I believed in once saved, always saved at the time. Uh, and as I was, you know, as I was doing the work of exegeting that, working through the commentaries, the arguments, it became pretty clear to me that the verse was teaching that a person could lose their salvation. And kind of when that went, uh, you know, when eternal security went under for me, I, I really, that was what convinced me of Arminianism. But uh, yeah, that that's kind of the story, both of how I got interested in the debate and then also how I ended up on the Arminian side. Mm, yeah, so I think it's so there's a few interesting points you bring up. Obviously, uh, most Arminians would kind of hold to some form of 
eternal security or total security. So what kind of like, um, so is that kind of fell for you? Like the whole idea of any sort of like Calvinism kind of just fell once you kind of lost that idea of eternal security? Well, that I think is one of the strongest points against Calvinism in scripture. So, you know, total depravity, Arminians agree with the Calvinists on that. That that wasn't so much of an issue. Uh, unconditional election, though, I think that's the, the rest of the points of Calvinism really fall logically. Like they come from unconditional election, right? If Jesus or God has only chosen to save a certain number of people unconditionally, then it makes sense that he's only going to die for them. He's only going to draw them and that they'll inevitably persevere. But mm -hmm. if we've got warnings in scripture saying, you know, hold to your faith, don't fall away. That to me really falsifies that God has unconditionally chosen some people. Uh, and so when that point fell through, then it really came clear to me that, that there was no case to be made for unconditional election. Uh, and so, you know, there were some texts I had to work through on that, of course, but um, that was really, that was a strong point for me. Yeah, so what kind of like, if we can like kind of look at like what your view is and like a snapshot and there's like big questions regarding soteriology, like if you're going to describe your views in just a few minutes, what would you say? Yeah, well, I think the acronym, everyone knows the TULIP acronym, right? And I will kind of put my... My answer to that is it's called FACTS. Uh, that's the acronym that I use. <laughs> I like it. Yes. Uh, it, it, I, it's not original to me, but it describes the position well. Uh, unfortunately, the points don't exactly correspond to the uh, TULIP, but um, I'll go through them quickly. Uh, F stands for freed to believe. So uh, what the idea is, is we would affirm total depravity, but we believe that God uh through what we would call prevenient grace enables people to believe. So uh, some people say Arminians believe in free will, but Roger Olson says it'd be more appropriate to say we believe in freed will. We believe that God uh, enables us to believe. And so that's what the F stands for. Uh, the A stands for atonement for all. And that would be the belief that when Christ died on the cross, he uh, suffered sufficiently to provide salvation for every single person. Uh, but that application of that atonement remains conditional upon faith. Uh, then we've got the C, which would be conditional election. Uh, that would be the view that God chooses to save people who believe. So faith functions as a prerequisite or a condition for salvation. Uh, let me see. I'm getting my acronym mixed up here. Uh, That's, That's it. Yes. T, total depravity. Uh, and uh, then S would be security in Christ. So a person, when they are in Christ, they are secure. But you don't have to remain in Christ. You do retain the freedom to, uh, to you know, leave Christ, and therefore you would forfeit your salvation uh, in those terms. And so that's that's the snapshot view of it. Of course, much more could be said on each point. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, what you talk about this idea of, um, you know, once saved, always saved is very common, even among Arminians or Molinists or some sort of like, people who reject Calvinists. Could, could you hit on that for a little bit and talk about like, um, what's your views regarding like eternal security? Sure. Yeah. Uh, it is popular. Uh, if you're kind of a non-Calvinist, but you still hold to eternal security, then that's what's known as once saved, always saved. And my view is that that's not even a logical position, because if a person, if you hold that a person has free will to believe, you know, then they should also have free will to not believe, right? The will in regard to salvation is free. So if you are free to believe in Christ and be saved, then you should retain the freedom to stop believing, right? But then if you hold the once saved, always saved, you face an interesting paradox here. You either have to posit that once a person is born again, once a person is saved, they lose free will, at least in that regard. And then, you know, I can pose a lot of objections there as to why does God give it to us in the first place? Because presumably it's because he values a free will choice. But, you know, all of a sudden then it seems like he doesn't value it when he takes that away from you after, you know, or else if you say that they retain that, then you have to face a paradox because then you hold that a person could not believe and still be saved. And so you've got to basically affirm that there could be such a thing as a saved unbeliever. And I think that that is uh, extremely problematic because we know from scripture that only people <laughs> who believe um, are saved, have eternal life, and uh, will ultimately be glorified. So once saved, always saved, that, that seems like, I think there's logical problems with that. 
and more significantly, there's biblical problems with that. Uh, the book of Hebrews is replete with warnings. Uh, Hebrews 6, uh, 4 through 6 gives e examples, in my opinion, of um, the author holding up this example of people that he describes as being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, being made a partaker with the Holy Spirit, and then falling away. So that, that, you know, I'm convinced from my own study that that cannot be a description of saved people. Hebrews 10, it describes a person who's sanctified by the blood of Christ and yet is ultimately thrown into the fire that consumes the adversaries. Romans 11, it says that uh, it compares the people of God to this olive tree. And it says that uh, you're grafted in through faith and you can be broken off through unbelief. So it doesn't seem biblically defensible to me. And it also doesn't seem entirely logical. Mm. Yeah, I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, so to speak, because obviously we're talking about common Calvinist uh, misconceptions. But one last thing here. So, like, what do you make of language in the Bible? Like, you know, have like First John, like, if they left from us, they were never of us. Or, you know, in John, you see some verses that really would seem to a lot of people to suggest eternal security. It's like, what do you make of like common eternal security, like proof text, so to speak? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll just take the two you mentioned and then one other one. So you've got the one in that. Yeah, you have a verse that says they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would uh, you know, not have gone out. Uh, so, you know, I, I affirm that there are, you know, people can have false faith and that people, you know, can have a false profession of faith. So I don't deny that, you know, that there can be those sorts of people. I would say you can't apply that verse to every instance because there are verses that cannot be explained that way. Uh, mm. You know, we're having a particular historical incident that's described there. And actually, as Robert Shank has pointed out, it's not even clear that in that instance, the people aren't saved. All it affirms, or, or that they had never been saved. It only affirms that they weren't saved at the time that they left. So uh, I even think, I even think that, you know, it's not even clear that it's saying that these people never had been believers there. Uh, a common one in the Gospel of John would be, uh, you know, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give them eternal life and uh, no one can take them out of my hand. Now, there's kind of a couple responses to make to that. First, as far as the reference of, you know, no one being able to take him out of his hand, we could say, but you could leave because there's, it's evidently the language of taking out is a reference to something external. We could also say that even if you think the person themselves can't leave, certainly God could take you out if you stop mm -hmm. believing. Uh, and then as to the reference to them never dying, I, I, I would be happy to, you know, make an argument. And this would take too long to get into here. But uh, being a sheep is a conditional category in the Gospel of John. So mm. Jesus' sheep are not, you know, this unconditionally chosen group of people. The sheep are people in this category who are, you know, listening to the Father and are learning from him. And that's why they're following him. Uh, these are all present tense in Greek. So it's my sheep are hearing my voice, following me. I'm giving them eternal life. And that implies a process. So I think it is possible for somebody to, you know, to stop uh, hearing his voice, to stop following him, and then they'll stop receiving eternal life. And one of the ones would be Philippians 1, 6, where it says, uh, he that hath begun a good work in you uh, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, the beginning of that verse is often not quoted, where Paul says that he's confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work would perform it. Uh, and he's addressing people he knows. So it's on the basis of what he knows about them. He's confident that the good work will continue. It's not an unconditional promise to them. And it's certainly not an unconditional promise to us. Mm. Yeah, lots of good stuff here, man. But uh love to talk with you about that sometime. But we'll, go, we'll talk about the Calvinist stuff. Uh, if you guys are listening, I already saw a few questions in. Uh, we'll hit some questions on the way out so be sure to ask them you can tag tag me or put a q in it or a super chat anything like that uh, but for now let's talk about some of these common calvinist misinterpretations or i don't want to call misinterpretation but misconceptions about uh, arminianism so it's going to be things that kind of you know you'll see online like oh david believes faith is a work or david believes the bible he's ignoring the clear support of calvinism in the bible but let's go through some of these and i think that one of the most common things is this idea that faith is a work um, because, you know, in a Calvinist perspective, it's totally dependent on God for your salvation. Uh, and I'm sure you affirm that in some sense, but like, what do you think when someone tells you, you know, David, you're putting faith as a work? 
Yeah, well, there's a few things here to be said. First, the Calvinist believes that faith is necessary in order for a person to be saved. So if faith, you know, if salvation is by works, in my view, then it's also salvation by works in his view. We all affirm that, uh, that you have to believe in order to be saved, because the Bible is clear on that, that salvation is by faith. So, uh, but, you know, more importantly, I think we can go to the scripture on this. Uh, a good verse would be Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith uh, and not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. So he says salvation is by faith, but he also says salvation is not by works. If faith is a work, that that's nonsense. He, he's flatly contradicting himself. Uh, another interesting verse would be um, uh, Romans 4. Uh, in Romans 4, that whole passage is talking about justification by faith. And it says that uh, if Abraham had been justified by works, he would have been able to boast. But because justification is by faith and because Abraham was justified by faith, he can't boast. So uh, Paul here is putting faith against works that these are like opposites, that if justification is by faith, then it's not by works. So, um, you know, I would say it's biblically indefensible. And it's just uh, believing doesn't earn anything. And when we're saying salvation is not by works for meaning that you can't merit, that you can't earn salvation, but believing in Jesus in no way does that earn it. God does not owe you salvation for doing that. He simply graciously uh, has chosen to give it to those who believe as uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty one says. So you wouldn't say like, there's a question in the logic that fits perfectly with this. You wouldn't say like the act of believing is a work? I mean, it depends on how you're defining it. So we can define work uh, broadly just as any action. And so if it's an action, yes. And if you want to say that's a work, then yes, it would be. But when uh, scripture is saying salvation is not by works, it's talking about a meritorious work. Uh, so think about it maybe this way. Uh, going to work, your job, right? Going there, that's an action, right? It's something you do. We could even say that that is a work. But just, you know, by going to work, if you don't, you know, clock in and do any work at your job, they're not going to pay you because you didn't earn anything. So, you know, yes, you have to do an action to get to work, but it, it would actually be doing the job that earns the paycheck. So uh, we would have to distinguish between works defined just as action and then works that are meritorious. And when scripture says salvation is not by works, it's talking about meritorious works. Okay, so let's look at another one of these. I think that's the idea. It's a really interesting thing. I think the Calvinists have an easy way out here on the question of is there free will in heaven? Because obviously, you know, if you're Calvinist, you can just say no. Um, but like, how do you look at the idea that do we have free will in heaven? And then let's just start with do we have free will in heaven? Um, I think it's a really interesting question uh, to bring up here. Yeah, no, and it is a good question. And uh, we actually don't have an answer on that from scripture. So, you know, uh, in one sense, it's going to be speculative. But here's what my thoughts are on that. My view is that God does value free will. And so uh, we're going to have that in heaven. But um, that there's going to be a, a sense in which it is limited. So libertarian free will, it just means that you have a choice of possible options. We well, got a range of possible options. You don't have to do just one thing. You can do, you know, A, B, C, you know, whatever's in the range. Mm -hmm. uh, so we can certainly conceive of people that do not have evil actions within that possible range. And so it seems to me, you know, once we've been sanctified, once we've been glorified in heaven, where, there, you know, there wouldn't even be uh, temptations, there wouldn't be, uh, you know, any of that, then it seems completely uh, plausible to me to say that we can have free will from a range of multiple good options. So we can have free will and we just would not have the option to do anything evil, right? I mean, think of the Garden of Eden, right? They could eat of any tree of the garden except for the tree of the uh, knowledge of good and evil. Take that tree out, there's nothing bad they can do, right? So mm -hmm. that, that's kind of my view of heaven is, is think of it, you know, you could eat from any tree and there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, I think I have to agree with you. I've been thinking about this question recently. I must have just it doesn't really relate to Calvinism. I just throw it in there. Um, but it, I think about this idea, like probabilistically, like uh, I can't, I can't say big words. Let's say there's like a 0.0001% chance that you may sin when you're in heaven. If you stretch it over an infinite amount of time, then you're eventually you're going to sin in heaven. Most likely, I think from a probabilistic perspective. So I think you'd agree that we wouldn't have, like there's a 0% chance that we would sin uh, that we're in heaven. Yeah. I mean, I would say, uh, 
you know, how, how the metaphysics of that work? Is it actually mm. impossible or is it just, you know, certain that there are no, um, that there's no circumstance and that you will? Uh, I would be inclined to say that, you know, whether we retain the possibility or not, I don't know. I'm pretty certain that scripture teaches that we won't sin. So even if, you know, you have that 0.1% chance, I would say God can foreknow that and know to stave that off so that uh, those circumstances never come. So, you know, either scenario, I think works, but I, I would be inclined to actually say that, you know, it just, you wouldn't even have the 0.1% uh, there just because there's not going to be any opportunity. Mm. I, so let's go to another uh, common misconception or argument here that's brought for Calvinism. And I think it relates to God, well, it does relate to God's foreknowledge. I think that, you know, for a lot of people, I know James White just said, well, if God knows for, for knows everything. You're cutting out, man. Uh-oh, we lost Zach. Well, that that's exciting. All right, well, he's coming back on. He's coming back on. So one sec, everyone. Whoa, Standing for Truth is here. I, I take it. I take it. He's not fond of the position I'm taking. I'm back. I think. Can you hear me, David? Uh, looks like Zach's hey, coming back on. There he is. You All right. Me? You hear me? Yeah. You see me? Yeah. This is this is weird. Like I'm in college now, so I have like really good internet. So like this is like this, this isn't the way it should be. I'm pretty sad right now. Okay, where were where were we? I kind of I don't know where I lost you. <laughs> you you were bringing uh, bringing up James White's argument about um, certainty of uh, the future entailing necessity. Yeah, so can you talk hit on that? I think it's a really important topic regarding God's foreknowledge and necessarily would that respond to um, God's foreordination? Yeah, the issue there would be: uh, Does God, having certain foreknowledge of the future, does that entail that a person can't um, have free will in a contra-causal sense? And uh, the answer there would be no. And philosophers have long recognized you know, there's a difference between certainty and necessity. James White, uh, he's got like a whole chapter on this in his book, The Potter's Freedom. I think it, it, the chapter is called "Determinatively Knowing." And basically his argument is that, you know, you can't do other than a perfect be or than an omniscient being knows. So determinism, compatibilism has to follow from that. So if God mm. foreknows it, then it, uh, you know, it has to happen that way. And it's a confusion of certainty with necessity because God knows with certainty what will happen. It doesn't follow that uh, you could not have done otherwise because had you done otherwise, God's knowledge would have been different. So, mm. uh, it's uh, it's a very basic modal error that James White makes, and he's been corrected on it. Is the thing, and he still unfortunately proceeds to commit the error. But um, yeah, it, it is it is a pretty basic fallacy. Mm. Doctor White, uh, thank you, Steve Fredo, for the super sticker. Really appreciate the support, my guy. I always appreciate your awesome questions. Uh, let's go to the idea that. I think this is one of the most common things is someone that will say the Bible clearly supports Calvinism. You know, you look at passages like, you know, you have in where like maybe in like Acts where it's those who, uh, I don't have the verse in mind, but you know what I'm talking about. It's like those who were elected believed more or less. That's the Zach paraphrase version or like verses like that. And people like, it's obvious that Calvinism is true. You're just trying to bend the Bible to fit into your philosophy. So like, how do you look at like when someone says something like that? 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's are uh, kind of the I think probably the four most commonly referenced passages. There would be Romans nine, Ephesians one, John six, and Acts thirteen forty eight. And uh, I'll just give a brief you know answer on how I read those sorts of passages. So John six, John six forty four in particular, the verse says that no one can come to me. Jesus speaking, uh, it says no one can come to me unless uh, the Father who sent me draws him. And uh, so, you know, on, on the one hand, that is no, it's not really clear that challenges the Arminian view because we would hold to belief in pervenient grace, which is that God must draw a person before they can believe. Uh, but actually, I would say in the context of John 6, that's not even what's being referenced there. In the context of John 6, uh, we're looking at what would be covenant transfer. So we have Jesus Christ, um, the Messiah of Israel, gathering together the faithful children of Israel. This is prophesied in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, we're told that, you know, when when this Messiah comes, he will gather together the faithful sheep of Israel. And that's what we see happening in the Gospel of John. So who are those being drawn in the Gospel of John? Are, are these, you know, an unconditionally elected group of people that God chose before the foundation of the world? It doesn't say that. that. That is nowhere in John 6. My hypothesis would be that God uh, was, or that the Father is drawing the faithful children of Israel to Christ. And I think there's contextual support for that, right? Uh, at the very end of uh, John 5, uh, which is, you know, it, it dovetails into John 6, it's the same people being addressed. Jesus says that uh, to, to those people who are, you know, being skeptical of his claims to deity, he says, if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me. Uh, but if you didn't believe Moses, how will you believe my word? So, you know, he puts the responsibility on them. They did not believe Moses, so they did not respond to God's prior grace. That's why they can't believe in him. That's why they're not being drawn by the Father. Very next verse, after John 6, 44, John 6, 45, Jesus says, those who have listened and learned from the Father come to me. So who are those being drawn? They're those who have listened and learned from the Father. So there's no reason to see unconditional election here, no reason to see irresistible grace. I just see God giving those uh, faithful, Jew, the faithful Jews to their Messiah. And uh, I think that's overwhelmingly supported by the context of the Gospel of John. Ephesians 1 says, uh, specifically verse four, uh, it says, just as he chose you in him before the foundation of the world in love, he predestined us to, um, to adoption. Uh, now, predestination for my view would be something that is for those in Christ. So a person is elected in Christ and you are in Christ by faith. That's that's made clear in Ephesians 1.13. Paul says that you uh, are included in Christ when you believe. Uh, so the the predestination then is not the same as election in my view. Uh, once a person is elect, they are predestined, but you're not you're not predestined to salvation. So predestination is a benefit of salvation. You're predestined to adoption. Uh, Paul makes it clear in Romans 8 that adoption, that's something that's still future. He says we await our adoption. Uh, but this issue is it says he chose you in him before the foundation of the world. Now, this is why I would hold to a corporate view of election. And the corporate view of election is that God chooses Christ before the foundation of the world. That's what Peter says, that Christ was chosen before the foundation of the world. Uh, being in him functions um, as the condition for being chosen. So my view would be not that God literally chose you before the foundation of the world. It would be that he chose Christ before the foundation of the world and all the people that would follow from and so when you are in him through faith, now what is true of him is true of you, right? That's why Paul can say that we are crucified with Christ. Well, were we literally crucified with Christ? No. Paul says we were, we, we've been raised with Christ. Were we literally raised with Christ? Well, no. So I would read Ephesians 1, 4 very much the same way. Christ was chosen before the foundation of the world. We're in him through faith. And so now it can also be said that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. And that, that's very much how I would read Ephesians 1, 4. Uh, Romans 9, I, I can't do the whole, uh, I can't do a full exegesis of it here, but suffice to say. exegesis in like two minutes? <laughs> Probably not. I do have a 40-minute video on my channel, though, where I do go through it. <laughs> 
first verse. Uh, so, you know, anyone who's interested can look it over there. But, um, you know, what I would say is that uh, this is uh, essentially Paul's um, defense of his doctrine of justification by faith. He's writing to Jewish people who thought that they were going to be saved just because they were, you know, the children of Abraham. They thought that was a promise God had made to Abraham. Paul goes through uh, this and, you know, says, no, that that has never been how it was going to work. Uh, election is in Christ. Uh, it's through him. Faith is how, you know, you uh, are included in him. And so all these objections, because Calvinists love the objections that come up, right? Who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? But these sort of objections are to um, what uh, it's to Jews who are, you know, thinking that they're going to be saved or should be saved just because they descended from Abraham, you know, instead of by, you know, salvation by faith in Christ. So it's very much those sorts of issues. Then we have this issue of God hardening the Israelites in their unbelief. Uh, in, in 11, he goes on to say that's for the purpose of spreading the gospel to the Gentiles and ultimately to provoke the Jews to jealousy so that they can also believe. So he says that he's hard or he says he's um, concluded all under unbelief so that he might have mercy upon all. And so what we're seeing here is uh, objections to being hardened as well. That's what the latter part of the verse is for. Uh, we don't have unconditional election to salvation in that passage. And the last one you brought up, Acts 13, 48, uh, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Uh, now, there's a few different ways you could go with that. Um, you know, a hypothesis that I held at one time is that these were people who had already been saved. Uh, since you have those sorts of people mentioned in uh, Acts 13:43, it mentions proselytes uh, to Judaism who would have already been saved. So you could say it's those people who are believing. But uh, my view is that appointed is just not a very good translation of the word. It, it, the verb is tatagmenoi, and it's from the verb tasso. And this ha word has a lot of meanings and um, appointed is one, but it's not even the most basic one. The most basic meaning is to arrange, right? Uh, a possible one would be to dispose. And I think the context of Acts 13, 48 really supports the translation disposed. Uh, we've got all these Gentiles coming up to hear what Paul and Barnabas say. They're talking to the Jews. They say, you've rejected it. Now we're turning to the Gentiles. Well, before that, they'd been preaching the gospel. So we have all these Gentiles who hear the gospel, want to believe in Christ, but you know they don't know that the gospel is for them until Paul says it in verse 47. And then... You know, we see evidence that they're disposed towards eternal life and that it says they're rejoicing. And so then, yeah, all who were disposed to eternal life, they believed. And so that would be very much how I would read that verse. So, you know, you can't challenge the translation, but you actually don't have to because there's other interpretations that work with the translation appointed. Yeah, bro, there's so much to chew on, uh, just that little, little chunk. But so... Let's go to this. You've obviously, how many times have you debated in the like Calvinist Arminianist issue? Oh, probably like 15 or 16. <laughs> you got a bunch of debates under your belt, a bunch of books under your belt. I'm friends with you on Facebook. You have like a new book there every like 30 minutes you're putting on Facebook or whatever you're reading. Uh, so how can we make this dialogue better? Because I feel like not just in the Calvinist Arminianist debate, but just about like any debate, whether it's like inside Christianity or outside, the debates can like be very toxic sometimes where it's like a, almost like we're in like mob mentality where it's like, you have to agree with me on everything. It can be kind of harsh. So like, how can we improve the dialogue in this like very important conversation? Yeah, there's a few ways. First, you know, we need to remember that we are Christians. And as Christians, we are supposed to have uh, respect and love towards everyone that we engage with, uh, believer or unbeliever. We need to have, um, we need to be civil. And that, I think, um, there's just not an excuse for, uh, in, you know, a lack of civility for any Christian whatsoever. Another way is remember, you're dealing with your brothers in Christ, right? Calvinists are my brothers in Christ. Arminians are, you know, the Calvinist brothers in Christ. We're trying to understand scripture. There are difficult passages. Um, you know, if you don't, if you don't think there are passages that, you know, at least look like they could be teaching Calvinism, then, you know, I'm questioning your objectivity because, you know, mm. I, absolutely. I can look at a passage like, you know, Ephesians one or Romans nine and see how a person gets, um, 
Calvinism out of that. I don't think it's legitimate exegetically, but you know, there's going to be a conversation there. Uh, in, in the same way, I mean, you can't look at John three sixteen and tell me you can't see how a person is getting that God loves the world out of that, uh, or you know, passages that talk about how God is not willing that any should perish, how God will have all men to be saved. Um, you, if you don't think a person can reasonably get, you know, Arminianism out of that, then I also need to evaluate your objectivity. So, you know, uh, I think take, you know, take some humility pills, if you will, and, um, you know, uh, realize that you're dealing with your brothers in Christ. Um, you know, be open to learning because it's a big issue and there's a mm. lot of material on it. Nobody, you know, virtually no one except, you know, you know, like people who dedicate their lives to this know all of it. So be open to learning. Uh, and one other thing is make sure you understand the other perspective. And this is something, of course, Arminians need to do. And I really, I honestly, I think Calvinists are the worst ones about this, but both sides don't misrepresent the other side. Read what the other side is saying. Realize there's a spectrum on both sides. Not all Calvinists are determinists. Not all Calvinists believe in limited atonement. Uh, so, you know, you got to realize there's a spectrum. Same with Arminians. Not all Arminians think that election is based on God's foreknowledge. Not all Arminians think you can lose your salvation. So, uh, you know, be sensitive to the fact that there's variety in the camps and, you know, try to learn, you know, where are they coming from? Try to understand them. And uh, to some extent, maybe these are just basic skills, but that's kind of how I see them as being practically relevant to this particular debate. Yeah, man. Thanks for a lot of great insights. Let's go to some Q&A. If you guys have questions, feel free to put them in the live chat. We'll get to as many as we can um, in the next 15, 20 minutes or so. Uh, but the first one here is from Praise Jesus. Thank you, Praise Jesus. Um, he's Wait, that's not the question. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> I, man, I am. All, it, it's been a long week. I need to get my life together. Here's the actual question. Uh, it's a question for David. It says, wouldn't sin in heaven be impossible since we have an incorruptible body and we will be one with God? To me, sitting against God would be the same thing as eating your own vomit. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it depends on how he's using the term impossible there. So uh, it will be impossible in the sense that, you know, it's it's not going to happen. Uh, just like you would never eat your own vomit. But is it logically impossible that you could eat your own vomit? Well, no, there's no contradiction there. So I'm not sure it's like th there would be a contradiction in saying a person could sin in heaven, but suffice to say, I'm sure it won't happen. Uh, next question is from Nick Quint. What's up, Nick? Is this being man-centered such a bad thing? <laughs> okay, so yeah, an objection to Arminianism and really... <laughs> All, all forms of non-Calvinism is that they're man-centered. <laughs> I, I, I have never understood the objection. Um, man-centered means it's it's all about you. And I hope we would all agree that it's all about God. The, mm -hmm. the debate over how has God chosen to express his sovereignty in the world. And uh, Arminianism, it's not man-centered. We believe that God um, gives people a free choice. And I think you have problems if you don't say that you know um and, and i know nick knows this because nick nick is way smarter than me and he, he's an arminian too so nick has no idea what he's talking about yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm just kidding love you dick uh nick's cool uh yeah you're so right uh, another question from nick. he says nick you're really using the word salad now he says what's the difference between synergism and conditional monodurism monogrism oh my god Monergism, yes. Uh, oh, okay, I don't like the terms monergism and synergism. It's often thought that Calvinism is monergism, that salvation is the work of God alone, while Arminianism is synergism. It requires some sort of cooperation between man and God. Um, I do not like the term synergism because I don't think salvation does involve a cooperation between man and God. I think faith does. Um, faith it has to be divinely enabled by God, and then a person has to believe. And Calvinists agree with that. Uh, R.C. Sproul, for example, has explicitly said faith is synergistic. It's not monergistic. We have to believe. So we all agree that faith is synergistic, and then salvation itself is monergistic. So I would call my position conditional monergism in that I think that salvation is an act of God alone, but it is conditioned on synergistic faith. And so um, I don't know if there really is a difference between synergism and conditional monergism. There would be if you got into like the technical definitions of the world, but I think both of those positions really, you know, if you ask a synergist, do you think that the salvation itself is of God alone, then he would be like, oh yeah. So I think 
colloquially, they're expressing essentially the same thing. A uh, question here from Jesse. Uh, how's it going, Jesse? He says, uh, what's David's outlook on Revelation? Is there a part of Revelation that is future-oriented? I ask because of things like Bowels of Wrath, which would be uh, for people who are not saved tone. Um, so you kind of get what's going on here, David? Well, I, I got the first part of the question. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an Orthodox preterist, so I think that the book of Revelation is primarily describing events that have already happened. Uh, but is there an aspect that's future oriented? Well, yeah, I don't think that Satan has been cast into the lake of fire yet. So I, I think that there are elements of the book that uh, have yet to be fulfilled. The last question, when he says he's asking because things like, hmm, yeah, I, I have to say, I don't understand that last question there. Hmm. Well, Jesse, if you're listening, feel free to clarify. We should have time for a good chunk of questions. Um, Question from me, Liz, and yes, we can put questions on the screen. That's kind of cool. Uh, it says, how do you explain why Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God? Um, and I think, I mean, there's a, there's also the idea of them, those who he foreknew, he predestined, um, you know, sanctified, glorified. I, I need to memorize more Bible verses. But you know what I'm talking <laughs> about. Like, how do you look at eternal, Romans 8 from denying eternal security? Well, I could point you to Romans 8, 13, where he says, if you live after the flesh, you will die. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, the golden chain, right? Romans 8, 29 through 30, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, those he also called and those called and glorified. So glorified, he also, or sorry, justified, glorified. Yeah. <laughs> There's three, I'm pretty sure. It's like, I think it's justified, sanctified, glorified. Yeah. I should know this. Uh, I, I, I actually have, um, that's one passage that I'm not quite sure um, what I think that that's saying. So there's a couple possibilities on how I could read that. So one would be that this is just an expression of people in the past. And on this view, for new would take the same meaning that it takes in uh, Romans 11, where it says, has God cast away his people whom he foreknew? And uh, this just means to have known in the past. And so if that's what it's referring to, then this is a reference to uh, saints who have, you know, lived their lives or faithful to God and, you know, glorified would mean that they're in heaven with God now. I think that's a possible meaning and that you can't get eternal security out of that if that's the case. Another view would be uh, like how B.J. Oropesa and Brian Abasquiano read it, which is that this refers corporately to the church. So uh, those he foreknew is not talking about anybody in particular. It's just talking about a group, the church, and that's what he, you know, foreloved, forechose that, and uh, he predestined that those in the church would be conformed to the image of his son. He uh, called them, calling on this view would refer to um, a divine naming, God naming his people. He justified the church. He'll glorify the church. Um, and so if that's the case, and I think that's also a possible meaning, then you would also not be able to get eternal security out of that text because glorification just refers corporately to those in Christ. But whether a person is part of that group or not is going to be conditional on whether they believe and continue believing. Uh, as far as the reference at the very end, um, it does not say that nothing can separate you from God. It says that no other created thing can separate you from the love of God. Uh, and God himself is not a creator thing. Go on to Romans 11, where it talks about the olive tree and um, people being broken off through unbelief. It's God who does the breaking off. So I would say that, uh, you know, even if you want to include yourself in there, that, you know, nothing can separate you from God. Uh, it's no created thing. God's not a created thing. And so Paul specifically puts that qualifier in there. Uh, next question is super... Uh... Why can't I pull this up? Man, I'm struggling today. I'm sorry, everyone. Um, and luckily, if you're listening via podcast, you're not witnessing the struggle. Um, this is a super chat from Steve. You know, thank you so much for your support. He says, if Satan rebelled, would, would you say God allowed it? If not, wouldn't there be sin in heaven or did God make them rebel because there's no free will? Yeah, I would say God allowed it. And when I say that, uh, I'm saying that we would not sin in heaven. So I'm not saying that there could be no sin in heaven because we would know that that did happen, but uh, those who go to heaven are those who are, have been sanctified. And uh, so that is why there will be sin in heaven, in my view. Well, thank you for your question, Steve Fredo. Thank you for engaging with us. Um, Nick Quint here again says, what does David think about Pervidian grace? Hashtag. 
All right. Yeah. My view of prevenient grace is that it's, uh, I might take a little bit of a different view from Nick because I know Nick is Wesleyan, but uh, my view of prevenient grace is that it's something that is uh, particular. So that God chooses to enable specific individuals at specific times. Now, I think God does enable everybody at some point. So everyone has an opportunity to believe. And I think God does this at times where people uh, are in such a state that they will be receptive to the gospel or more, you know, would be most likely to believe. And I think it also has something to do. I think there's different levels of pervenient grace. So I think there's very like general pervenient grace in nature. Uh, you would have, you know, the gospel, the testimony of Christians, uh, just uh, general, you know, a desire to know truth. And I think how responsive a person is to these sorts of more general versions of pervenient grace uh, are determinative for uh, if a person receives more of, um, I guess we could say a stronger sort of prevenient grace. So uh, we might say that those who respond to the light they've been given will receive more light. And so ultimately people who want to know the truth, God will reveal the truth to them and that they will, you know, I think be in a better position to believe than a person who, you know, just spurns the truth altogether. Uh, next question here is from Miles, uh, who says, if there is free will, then why would anyone think to not be a Christian? Hmm. Well, there's are, there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, and, you know, the, these can't be intellectual reasons. So I don't say that every single person who uh, is, you know, uh, an atheist, an unbeliever, is it's all because, you know, they're wicked and they're suppressing the truth that they know. I think that, you know, there can be honest skepticism. Uh, but then there also are people who just, you know, don't like perhaps the idea of um, a God defining what's right and what's wrong, don't like the idea, uh, you know, prospects of sin and hell and uh, doctrines like that. And then there also can be deception. So, uh, you know, uh, people in what I would consider false religions. So I think there are a, a lot of reasons, a lot of explanations why people uh, are not Christians. Mm. Uh Man, I cannot think. Uh, question from Jesse, a follow-up from earlier. He says, the wrath of God is poured out in bowls on unbelievers while the unbelievers are persecuting the same. So why would God need to exercise his wrath more than once? I guess it's a follow-up to his earlier question. About Revelation. All right, let's see if I can follow this one. The wrath of God is poured out in bowls on the unbelievers. I mean, I... I uh, it's an interesting question as to, you know, why God would need to uh, exercise his wrath more than once. But I guess I'm not I'm not sure why that would have bearing on the Calvinism Arminianism issue. And maybe maybe he doesn't mean for it to. Uh, but no, yeah, I would have to uh, study, you know, the context of the passage in Revelation to have an answer on that one. Sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll hang around here for a couple of minutes. If there's any more questions, we're all caught up, which is. Pretty amazing because the past few times there's been so many questions, but I guess David just can perfectly uh, answer everything. Uh, or, so, or maybe maybe I'm just boring and they're not asking. <laughs> no, definitely not that. How can how can someone see that face and and think boring? Well, they might want to you know just let's switch to audio. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, podcast people, you're missing out. Um, but David, uh, we've covered a lot of ground here. Any kind of like last thoughts you want to bring up before we start to wrap things up here? Uh, Arminianism is the gospel. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, no, I think it was a good chat. Um, you know, uh, there are unfortunately a lot of misconceptions and it's on both sides. There's a lot of misconceptions about Calvinism as well. Uh, I would say, you know, always, always try to, you know, be a student, um, especially if it's not, you know, an issue that you've looked into a lot. I've been studying the issue for probably about five years now, reading about every book I can get on the issue. I still learn things. And, um, you know, not, not to say that I'm like this scholar or anything, but I would say that I have studied the issue more than most people. And if I'm still learning things about it, then chances are most other people are as well. So, you know, be a student, be sensitive to the particular person that you're talking to. Um, and, you know, be open to correction and, Here's one other thing. It's also make a distinction between what the person is saying and what the person, um, you know, what what they say kind of logically entails. And that's important because, you know, maybe you think that Arminianism 
entails work salvation somehow. Okay, but don't say that Arminians believe in work salvation. We don't believe in work salvation. If you think that somehow salvation by faith, that makes it salvation by works, say, you know, build an argument, show how that follows, but don't say that's what we believe. So it's important to, you know, make that distinction between uh, those things. And, and the same goes for the other, the other side. You know, if you're going to argue against Calvinism, don't just say, you know, oh, well, you know, if God determines everything, then, uh, you know, then Calvinists believe that God is arbitrary in salvation or something, for example. Uh, well, you know, maybe you think that entails arbitrariness. But you have to build the argument. Don't say Calvinists believe God is arbitrary because the Calvinist doesn't believe that, even though uh, perhaps their view entails that. All right, here we go. We got one last chance here with this question from Jesse, and it's probably the last thing we'll address today. But he says, so Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross, right? Well, then why would God need to exercise his wrath more than once? Calvinism would say it was a fulfillment of the wrath on, on unbelievers. Uh, okay, okay. The connection to the atonement, that, that clarifies it a lot. There we go. Okay, so when we say that the uh, wrath is being... And I, I wish I'd said the passage in Revelation. I'm not sure if it's talking about final judgment on the wicked. So let me think of two possible scenarios. He might be referring to wrath that is being dumped out in a particular instance, or he might be talking about final eschatological wrath. So in the first, if it's the first case, if, it, if it's a reference to wrath being poured out upon uh, people in space-time, then uh, then we wouldn't say that that is the wrath that Christ suffered on the cross. We would say that Christ wrath suffered the eternal wrath, uh, but obviously that doesn't mean all the wrath of God was um, satisfied in that case. God can still be wrathful and can even judge a believer. Uh, we know that from scripture. So showing that, you know, God demonstrates his wrath somewhere that would not falsify a, a general view of the atonement. Now, if this is a reference to final eschatological wrath, then it's going to be because uh, even though Jesus suffered the wrath of God uh, on the cross, the application of that atonement to an individual depends on faith. And so it's going to be an unbeliever who's suffering uh, the eternal wrath of God. And so because atonement, uh, even though it's been provided for him, it hasn't been applied to him. And so he still has to suffer the full penalty for his sins. Awesome, bro. So much good stuff here, Dave. I thank you so much for your time here. Uh, the Faith Because of Reading YouTube channel is in the description. I'd encourage you to check out David. Is there any else, like if people want to follow you and what you're doing, how do, how do they follow David Palm? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Just my YouTube channel or uh, on Facebook. That That's about uh, all I, that, that's about the extent of my social media. <laughs> I wish I could say the same, man. Uh, dude, thank you so much for your time. There's so much good information. I can't believe we packed all that into just 51 minutes, dude. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for tuning in, everyone. This is Ed here in Apologetics. It's always glad you tuned in. If you're new, I'd encourage you to subscribe. Uh, leave us a review if you're listening to the podcast. Leave a like if you're watching on YouTube before you're on your way now. As always, this show is brought to you by you with your support on patreon.com slash here in Apologetics. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting. Um, as I'm a college student, this is what I do to work while I'm in college. Um, and your support means a lot. You can support through becoming a patron or becoming a member, super chat, all that stuff. But once again, David, thank you so much for your time, man. All right. Thanks for tuning in. God bless everyone.